Thanks for listening today to In 16 Years. I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where I talk about what I've learned in 16 years of living with endo, severe IBS, fibromyalgia, and interstitial cystitis. My name is Brittany, and I live with celiac disease, anxiety, and my own hormonal fun. We hope this show will inspire you, empower you, and help you feel supported on your own health journey. Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Today, we welcome Dr. Jeff Arrington to the podcast. Dr. Arrington is an outspoken endometriosis advocate, expert endometriosis excision surgeon, and advanced minimally invasive gynecologic surgery specialist. Dr. Arrington was also recently elected to serve as the vice chair of the AAGL Endometriosis Reproductive Surgery Special Interest Group and is currently serving as chair of the same. The evolution of his practice to focus on advanced excision of endometriosis really was driven by patient need. Dr. Arrington was given the basic knowledge and understanding of surgical principles to treat this disease through his fellowship with the internationally renowned surgeon, Dr. C.Y. Liu. And then in his practice, he was able to continue advancing knowledge and surgical skill through focusing on endometriosis care eventually building a full multidisciplinary practice. So now, very excitingly, after his last four years as a surgeon at the Center for Endometriosis Care in Atlanta, Georgia, he's now opening a new, world-renowned endometriosis clinic called EndoWest in the Greater Salt Lake Valley. Dr. Arrington, through his interest in endometriosis, has truly found what he calls his happy place with work. He enjoys the challenge of a difficult excision surgery, and he enjoys working with patients to instill even the slightest sense of hope to those who have suffered with this difficult and painful disease for far too long. Dr. Arrington is well known in the endometriosis community as someone who advocates for all patients, both in and out of the operating room. He's constantly working to improve care options for patients with a focus on true and truthful informed consent and a higher value to patient autonomy. We are so, so thrilled that Dr. Arrington agreed to come on the show today and talk to us about informed consent as well as the ACOG guidelines. So please join us in welcoming him to the show. Hi, Dr. Arrington. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Would you tell us who you are and a little bit about yourself? Yes, my name is uh, Jeff Arrington. I am an endometriosis specialty surgeon, uh, essentially just focusing my surgical practice, medical practice on the surgical management of endometriosis. I, years back, found a love for laparoscopy that has developed into a fellowship through the AAGL and SRS a long, long time ago in 2005. And then since then, the course of my career has really morphed into the care of of patients with endometriosis, more because of the need in the community. 
as I focused on minimally invasive surgery, the need was so great that it, it morphed into really just a focus on endometriosis at this point. I am currently getting ready to start up a practice in the South Salt Lake Valley called Endo West. It will be a, a rejuvenation of my prior practice in Utah, uh, ideally on a bigger scale, using some of the things I've learned at the Center for Endometriosis Care regarding multidisciplinary teams and what I can expect or need to expect from my helping surgeons. Super excited for that opportunity. Patients seem to be excited. I, I hope that it will just expand the opportunity for appropriate endometriosis care to more patients. Other couple cool things that I'm excited about this coming year or this past year, I've served as the vice chair of the AGL endometriosis special interest group. And with that comes the next year as chair of that same group with a few you know, goals and things in mind that I'm hoping to improve the education and understanding of, of residents, potentially medical students regarding how they need to approach endometriosis. Wow, you have so much going on. We are just so happy to hear that you're opening up a, a world-class endometriosis care facility in Utah. I think it's so important. Um, as we know, access to excision can be very hard to get, very limited. So just having another center, world-class center open in another part of the world is so exciting. Um, we'll also hear that you have a lot going on. You're, you know, a surgeon, excision surgeon, you're opening your own practice, you are a board member on various committees. So just really want to thank you again for making the time to come on the podcast today and speak to our community. So in today's episode, we really want to cover a few things. We really want to talk about the ACOG guidelines, informed consent, and then what you'd like to see the future of endometriosis care look like. Now, in this podcast, um, we have talked a lot, and we've also had guests on the show. We've had Dr. Redwine on the show, Heather Guidon on the show, Wendy Bingham on the show, and other guests. And, you know, they've talked, as well as myself, at length about major problems with endometriosis care. And, you know, part of those problems, I think we all know, comes from these myths that endometriosis is the endometrium and endometriosis is from retrograde menstruation, which it's not. And part of the poor care also comes from the broken insurance reimbursement system. And um, we've talked about this and other issues within our care at great length. So today, I really wanted to bring you on because as we're diving deeper in this podcast into the different problems behind the endometriosis care. One of my goals is really to peel back the layers of endometriosis care and kind of discover and discuss, you know, we know that general gynecologists, the majority of them lack knowledge on expert excision treatment, but, you know, why is that? And so a big part of this, I think, is stemming from endometriosis guidelines. So today we wanted to bring you on the show to talk about the endometriosis guidelines, specifically the ACOG guidelines, which, you know, since you're in the United States and you work with these guidelines. So I'd love to ask you, what are endometriosis guidelines? What are the ACOG guidelines? And why are endometriosis guidelines so important? So endo endometriosis guidelines are essentially, uh, I mean, it's typically some larger group that gets together their think tank, you know, they bring clinical minds in a bunch of different people to sit and review literature, sit and review available therapies, treatments, what we know about a disease and try to put that into a concise document. 
I have had uh, an opportunity to participate in one of those on a smaller scale uh, years ago for Intermountain um, Intermountain Healthcare by sit, sitting on their GYN development board. And, and it, it can be difficult because clearly I think of endometriosis differently than most of the people on that committee. And when, when you put it to a committee form, it can be very difficult to appease all the different minds and inputs, even though you can support what you have with data and with studies. Many people still come in with preconceived notions of how a disease should be approached and guidelines. It can be difficult. I don't know how that's been done on bigger scales like ACOG, but as we'll go through, I think, in the podcast, I have some significant concerns on how things are presented in the ACOG document. Essentially, guidelines are written or scripted instructions or education to providers on how they should approach a particular disease. Uh, In this case, endometriosis, they try to go through and give an an understanding or education of what the disease is, what causes it, what symptoms patients can expect. And then they go through pages and pages of different ways to treat or approach the disease. Those guidelines, even though I have it from from one person affiliated with ACOG, that they do not see their educational bulletins as standard of care guidelines from a clinical and functional standpoint, working in the private community, work, you know, having gone through residency, practicing providers view them as guidelines on how we need to approach a particular disease. So even though they may not mean them to be that structured standard of care, in the real world, that's what we look to, to set kind of standard of care and guidelines that essentially residency programs and, and doctors, preceptors in residency teach their residents how to manage a particular disease, in this case, endometriosis. So there are different endometriosis guidelines worldwide, depending on different regions, different countries. Um, I don't know how many guidelines there are. I think there are at least like eight to 10 different sets of guidelines, if not more. I know that the guidelines, you know, they're basing on sometimes on different research because they're looking up different data. And Kate and I from Endogirls blog, we did an episode on this, on like the data that different guidelines are based on. So for the ACOG guidelines, their guidelines came out in 2010. And so it's been over 12 years since they updated their guidelines. And as a comparison, we know that the European guidelines, they had come out in 2013. And then nine years later in 2022, they were updated. And then NICE recently announced that they were updating their guidelines in 2023. So they do their update to their guidelines every five years. So I'm just wondering, do we know when ACOG is going to update their guidelines? The short answer to that is no. I remember uh, before coming to the Center for Endometriosis Care, I had reached out to, I won't throw out the name, but I reached out to the person with ACOG that is over their education aspect. And we, we had some emails back and forth regarding what I consider deficiencies in the current endometriosis bulletin. And I was told back then, so that would have been just before 2018-ish, that they were in the process of reviewing the endometriosis document. And then back and forth, you know, follow-up emails was just told that they were still reviewing and that there's multiple people involved and drafts have to go out and be approved. 
And essentially now, five years later, the only thing that ever came out of that 2018 review is that they reaffirmed the 2010 document. So as far as I can tell, nothing was changed. They just took their time, reviewed everything and said, oh, it's good as it is, and just left it reaffirmed. And as far as I know, there's no plans to look into it that are currently on the docket. Yeah, I think a lot of us in the community, we have frustrations that the guidelines haven't been updated because we do see major concerns with the guidelines. And, you know, we would like the guidelines to be updated to be more reflective of expert endometriosis care. So I did take a look at the endometriosis, the ACOG guidelines. So that's the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. So I did take a look at their guidelines. There's actually two different documents pertaining to endometriosis. There is the ACOG Committee Opinion N760, which is dysmenorrhea and endometriosis in the adolescent, which came out in December 2018. And then there's the ACOG Practice Bulletin 114, Management of Endometriosis, which came out in 2010. Um, so I did want to take a look first and just discuss the one that came out in December 2018, seeing as that's more recent. Um, and this is the ACOG Committee Opinion and 70 Dysmenorrhea and Endometriosis in the Adolescent. So one of the very first things that I picked up on in the guidelines is basically, you know, it talks about the treatment for adolescents. And it does say that treatment can consist of conservative surgical therapy for diagnosis and treatment combined with ongoing suppressive medical therapies. But something I noticed in the talk about the surgery, it does say that lesions should be, quote, destroyed, ablated, or excised, end quote. What do you think of this recommendation that these different types of surgery have been lumped together, that endometriosis can be destroyed, ablated, or excised? So I guess, I mean, clearly I am a fan of excision and I'll, and I'll cover the reasons why. But in, in essence, if we understand endometriosis as a collection of abnormal cells and tissue, the goal of surgery should be to get rid of those abnormal cells and tissue. And we know that there are various ways that that can be done. Certainly cutting them out, cutting them out is, is a great way to do it. In reality, burning, destroying, if we can fully destroy those lesions, either by laser vaporization or burning them sufficiently to where those cells die, that in essence, those cells are treated. Now, that they may not be removed fully from the body, but the, the active ability of those cells has been removed if they can be treated completely. The problem that we see with laser vaporization and with ablation is that typically those techniques are used and they're used incompletely. But it used incompletely for good reason, because if I have an endometriosis implant, say over a ureter or on the surface of the bowel, if I try to burn that spot deep enough to kill all of the endometriosis cells, I'm also going to be damaging the normal ureter, damaging the bowel and causing problems. Because we don't know. I mean, the studies have not been done. You know, if I take an ablative energy and I apply it to a tissue, how long do I need to burn to achieve a particular depth? So if I have an endometriosis lesion that's, say, five millimeters deep, 
how long do I need to put the cautery on there to destroy the lesion? And how do I prevent that heat energy from destroying other tissue around it? So the, the reality is, is endometriosis could be destroyed by lasering or by ablating or burning. The problem is we don't know how deep we need to go. And also, if we go deep enough to destroy the lesions, we're also damaging things like bowel, bladder, ureters, things that will cause trouble down the road. Now, by cutting them out, we can typically separate that and dissect it from normal appearing tissue. It allows us to isolate abnormal tissue from normal tissue and then cut out the disease. But we do that in a controlled way, looking at how deep we need to go. And if, and if we do have to cut into the bowel or if we have to cut a piece of the ureter out, that allows us to do it in a safe manner and repair those structures before we've, we're finished without wondering if I burned too deeply and caused an injury that can't be corrected at the time. Does that make sense? The, the reality is, is endometriosis could be destroyed by lasering or blading, but it cannot be done safely in most of the deep and, and widespread cases. And most doctors are not going to be that aggressive with those techniques in order to actually fully treat the disease. We also see this in practice as well, because we know, I mean, studies have shown and patient experiences have shown that with ablation, I mean, persistence of endometriosis, meaning that endometriosis was not fully removed, that's expected when it comes to ablation. So I think we know even within, you know, what's actually happening in the operating room is that the disease is not getting destroyed fully and patients are having ablations and then they're having to go back year after year for, you know, multiple ablations. And I mean, the damage that that can do, you know, both physically and psychologically to a patient is, it's really high. So apart from the fact that the disease is not typically fully removed when it comes to ablation. So another issue, you know, with lumping all of these different kinds of surgeries together and just even lumping endometriosis surgery, like that all excision is equal when we know that all excision is not equal, that excision surgery is operator dependent. There's excision surgery and then there's like expert excision surgery. So I wanted to bring in a quote from Heather Guidon, who's at the CEC. When I asked her about this question, she said, and I quote, continuing to conflate all surgery by all surgeons as equally efficacious has direct impact on the quality of care and the failure to recognize the subspecialty leading to continued access and reimbursement barriers, end quote. It's not just in issues with removing the disease and the patient getting the best care out there, but big issues in the fact that endometriosis should be its own subspecialty. Endometriosis excision is paid the same as ablation. So there are just these huge problems, I think, with saying that all laparoscopy is equal for endometriosis. Yeah, it's very true. Very true. And, and one of the problems, and you alluded to it early, is that patients are told that their endometriosis has been treated surgically, and then they're subsequently you know, pushed on to so many other different ways trying to chase down pain, and many of them eventually just told them that it's in their head and they're just going to have to deal with it, when really there's still persistent disease because their, their doctor did not treat it completely. And we do see various, you know, varying degrees of, of excision. I know looking at my colleagues, my general OBGYN colleagues, more and more I'm seeing that they do try to excise some of the simpler disease. 
not all of them, but I do see that more and more that they're trying to excise the simple disease that they feel comfortable going after. And then appropriately so, if they find disease that they're not comfortable with, that they back off and they, you know, they don't treat it. The problem is, is then they need to realize that there's still work that can and needs to be done in those patients. So we are, we are seeing a slight move in the real practice world toward excision. But again, we need to carry that beyond those doctors doing some simple excision. If they see disease that they're not comfortable treating, that they would treat it just like they would if they found cancer in a patient or if there's complex prolapse, that they would then tell their patient, hey, this is what I found. I'm going to refer you on to this other doctor if you want me to. And that's what I did early in my career. You know, you mentioned that not all excision is equal. Early in my career, it took me a long time to get the after fellowship, even though being exposed to it, knowing how to excise it, knowing how to dissect out the bowel, how to remove endometriosis off the bowel. It took me a long time to develop the techniques that I've developed and progress in my surgical ability to treat the disease. Early in my career, if I found a patient, you know, I had one that ended up having diaphragm disease and needed bowel resection. I ended up referring her here to the Center for Endometriosis Care. I had another one that had extensive bowel disease that I didn't have anybody at that point to help me treat that. I referred them down to Dr. McGrena at Mayo Clinic. So even younger doctors realizing what limitations are, but also understanding that there are people who can treat that and make sure that that gets presented to the patient as an option. Yeah, I think what you said is really key is just the realization that if the surgeon or if the doctor is not able to treat endometriosis, is not able to fully excise, then to refer the patient out. And I think, unfortunately, for a lot of us patients, that has not been our experience that we've been referred to a more expert surgeon. Instead, we've been told, you know, oh, well, Lupron will clean up the rest of the disease I didn't leave behind, or it's just too risky to remove your disease from the bowels. And then we go around thinking, you know, we have a very complicated case. It's too risky when really we could be, probably can be treated with a surgeon who has more expert skills. So I think this is one of, one of the big problems for me is that when, you know, excision and ablation are not seen separately in the eyes of the guidelines and oftentimes, therefore, in the eyes of doctors, other gynecologists, general gynecologists, then, you know, we're not having that informed consent. We're not being told all the options that are on the table and getting to choose from all the options, excision being one of them. And excision may not be accessible for us, but at least we would know that excision was there and we could research about it versus, you know, finding out more information from social media or from a Facebook group or from a podcast than from our doctor. And again, this is not any like blame to the doctors. This is just a discussion about why the standard of care is the way it is and the obstacles that we as patients face, but I think also the obstacles that many general gynecologists face because they want to help us and they want to give us the best care that they can. But I don't think in many ways that they've been set up for success to do that. And that must be really frustrating, frustrating for us, definitely frustrating for us, but that also must be really frustrating for, you know, for the general gynecologist who has this patient in pain in their office and, you know, they'd love to help them, but they're just not set up to be able to efficiently do so. No, I, I completely agree. And I think as we go on through the podcast, we'll cover this a little bit more in depth but as we, as we think about informed consent, it needs to be based off of known truths, known things about disease, 
So, you know, stating that Lupron or things like that will kill off residual disease, not a single study that supports that. So it has to be based off truth. Uh, and then it also needs to put, in my view, it needs to focus more on a patient autonomy rather than a, a medical paternalism, where instead of the doctor deciding that it's too risky, that the patient is presented with the findings and the potential options and risks, and then the patient gets to decide what's too risky and what's not. Continuing here to talk about the ACOG committee opinion N760, which is dysmenorrhea and endometriosis in the adolescent. One of the things I came across is this statement that patients may need to go through different types of hormonal suppression to find the one that works for them. And it says that since endometriosis is a chronic condition, quote, patients should continue hormonal suppression until they are actively trying to become pregnant, end quote. And so I think that one of our main complaints as patients um, when we can't access excision is that there are no options left for us, right? Because we try a hormone and that one doesn't fit for us. And then we try another hormone and that one, you know, doesn't fix because there's all these side effects. And we try another, and we try another one. We go from the pill to the patch to the IUD to Lupron to Orlissa to Visan or Progestins or Depo-Provera, and we're still in pain, right? And so we're doing what the guidelines recommend, which is hopping from one hormonal suppression to another. What is your opinion on this recommendation to keep trying hormones until the patient find one that works for them and to stay on these hormones until they're trying to conceive? So as, as far as I know, I know it's common practice what, to do what we call hormone shopping, where you know they try a birth control pill and either it doesn't work or it works for a period of time and then stops working. And so they'll just randomly pick a different one. Well, let's try this one instead, or let's do extended cycle or, or no cycle. Progesterone, or we can do the depo shot or IUD, a lot of different hormone options. Truth is there probably are some patients that will respond to different hormone classes differently. But on, I don't see the benefit of switching from one birth control to another because those are typically estrogen progesterone based and switching from one to another, you're essentially using the same therapy line, maybe just a different formulation of the drug. If anything, you know, move to progesterone only. Uh, we'll talk about GNRH, you know, antagonist. GN, I call them GNRH modulators to cover both classes. The reality is when most of these medicines are studied head to head in patients that none of them perform any better than any other at controlling the pain. Uh, and that's, that's even stated in the ACOG guidelines that Lupron doesn't perform any better than birth control pills. It doesn't perform any better than the depo shot. It doesn't perform any better than the IUD. So essentially, they're all just, to me, they're all this same class of medications, and we often tier them, tier one, tier two, tier three, or second line. The only thing second line about them really is the cost and the side effects, because the, the benefit, the potential benefit of symptom control is equal throughout the whole, whole hormone class. So the idea that they should find one that works and continue on that until they want to get pregnant my question to those providers is always, if you have a, a patient that's come to see you, say at 17, 18, and that patient's been on hormones until their mid-20s, and now they come in with stage four disease where everything's frozen in and stuck and their tubes are blocked, 
what are you going to tell that patient at that point when the patient was never given the option early on or or not necessarily the option but the information that we can control your symptoms with these hormones but we don't have anything that we know of that prevents progression so you could get to your mid 20s and find out that your disease has progressed to the point where it's really negatively impacted your ability to have children that is a major major law in that argument that they should just stay on it until they get pregnant because there are many patients whose disease progresses that by the time it gets managed surgically, natural pregnancy may no longer be an option for them, even if their pain was controlled on the medicines. Yeah, I think you bring up so many great points. I mean, the first point being that these medications in studies have been shown to have very similar efficacy in the patients for managing symptoms. And I think sometimes we go to a doctor, a doctor has like their preferred pill, you know, or their preferred mode of hormonal suppression when really the patient could be told that, you know, these are the various options. And then there are pros and cons of each different option. There may be, you know, a side of a different side effect profile, as we know for GnRH modulators um, versus like other types of hormonal suppression, non-GnRH hormonal suppression. So I think sometimes the patient can get locked in with a certain pill or a certain shot or a certain type of hormonal suppression because that's the favorite of the provider when maybe that's not the best option for the patient. Maybe putting an IUD in forgetting about it would have been really good for the patient versus, you know, having a shot or having something oral every day. And I think another really fantastic point that you brought up is Um, Once more, coming back to that informed consent that the patient's disease can and may progress during the time that they're on hormonal suppression. So not having that information, thinking that, oh, I'm treating my disease, I'm quote unquote suppressing my disease, I'm managing my disease. But maybe for many of us, I mean, until I started doing advocacy, I didn't know what it meant to manage my disease. I thought that, you know, if if I was going on this hormone to manage my endometriosis or suppress my endometriosis, that would mean that, you know, not only are my symptoms going to improve, but my disease isn't going to progress. I mean, that's kind of what the, in my mind, the word suppression or management implies to me as the patient. So not being outright told that your disease can still progress while on these drugs, I think is a real lack of informed consent, because maybe that wouldn't be the option that we would choose. Maybe we wouldn't bounce from hormone to hormone for a decade. If we knew that excision surgery was available, maybe we would try to seek that out instead of continuing to use hormonal suppression. And it's interesting that word suppression is used all the time, but nobody defines it. You know, like you mentioned, what is meant by suppression? Really, the only thing that we know that hormones do is suppress or control symptoms. But do we know what it does on a cellular level? We don't have any evidence that it prevents progression. That's one of the big things that the big problems I have with that whole suppression idea is nobody actually defines it. And a medical legally, I mean, looking at this from a provider and, you know, just putting myself in the place of other OBGYNs, I think there is a big problem in, in this realm of informed consent, when, you know, we just put patients on these medicines, whether or not they work, and then leave them in that space and, you know, for four or five years or more, 
and then they finally find out that they are infertile because their diseases progressed when all along they were told that this medicine was either suppressing it or some are flat out told that it's going to prevent progression of the disease and it doesn't. As a provider, that leaves me at a huge medical legal risk potentially. And we've actually seen that come to fruition in the UK. And I think one of the main things is if as a doctor, as a provider, you can't give information to your patients that you yourself don't know. So if you yourself don't know that this medication does not prevent progression, or you yourself don't know that Lupron does not actually clean up residual disease, of course, you're telling your patient incorrect information because that's the information that you've been taught. That's the information that is generally going around in the medical community at large about endometriosis just so much misinformation that then is getting parroted back to the patients. So one of my final questions about the ACOG committee opinion and 70 dysmenorrhea and endometriosis in the adolescent, it does state in this committee opinion that endometriosis in adolescents is considered a chronic disease with potential for progression if left untreated. And it basically says that the goals of treatment include, quote, symptom relief, suppression of disease progression, and protection of future fertility, end quote. So I'm just wondering, what do you think of these goals as listed in the guidelines? And do you think that the current guidelines are helping adolescents with endometriosis achieve these goals? So clearly, I think the goals are good goals, but those goals are not supported by either of their documents. The only thing that we know of that is proven to prevent disease progression or worsening is surgical treatment or removal of disease. And they, they have this phrase in their adolescent document saying that goals of therapy are symptom relief. We do know that hormones can accomplish that. Hormones can accomplish symptom relief in, in a lot of patients. But the suppression of disease progression, we know from their other document, from, from just the general endometriosis practice bulletin, they state in there that there's no data to support the use of hormones to prevent progression of disease. So for them to then turn around and advocate pure hormone use in these adolescents when one of their goals is to prevent progression, those two don't, they, they don't fit. I mean, they're contradicting each other in their own documents. And then protection of future fertility, the only way that I think we could protect future fertility in, in younger patients while continuing hormone therapy is if we do have a way to evaluate or periodically look into what's going on with the disease. And we are le learning a little bit more about how to better use ultrasound to you know, look at the potential for adhesions, look at invasion of disease, really for, for fertility and, and things of that nature. We, we, really, we would really want to track adhesion formation and the, the overall inflammatory response and the results of that. We're learning how to do that better with ultrasound. One big problem is a lot of adolescent patients are not going to tolerate a vaginal ultrasound. And so it makes it very difficult to know what the disease is doing inside and without that knowledge, I think it's important to present the patient all the different options, especially if we look at those three goals to control symptoms, to prevent progression and protect fertility. If we don't have a good way to monitor 
disease progression during our hormonal treatment, we have to keep in the back of our mind that the disease can be progressing. And the only way we would know the extent of the disease typically is with surgical evaluation. And then, you know, really to prevent worsening of disease would be full removal of the disease. I also think that those are really great goals. But as you said, I mean, we really don't have anything that can do suppression of disease progression except excision surgery. So it's kind of ironic to me that, you know, they state in the guidelines that endometriosis is chronic and it has this potential for progression if left untreated. But then unfortunately, much of the guidelines really focuses on that, you know, hormonal medical management. And we know that hormonal medical management, so like symptom management is not the same as treatment. You know, for me, when reading these, these documents, I mean, just one of the main things that stands out to me is just not talking enough about excision in the document and just not talking about, you know, the difference between excision and ablation, not talking about the importance for referring a patient to someone who is an expert in excision. It should have a clear section about endometriosis treatment, excision, and the importance of giving that informed consent. Okay, this is what this is as far as I can take you as the doctor. You know, I can help you find a, a hormone that, you know, potentially relieves your symptoms. I can listen to you. I can help you find ways to work on your pain. I can prescribe pain medications. But eventually, if you want more, if you want excision surgery, which is an option, you'll need to be referred to an excision surgeon, which I am not. Well, I agree. You know, and, and if I could write the document as we moved into the treatment options, the first thing would be is really every patient, regardless of age, regardless of history, has three different categories of options to choose from. The first is observation understanding, you know, and if we can get a good idea on, on what the pelvis looks like from an ultrasound standpoint with sliding signs and signs of adhesions, things like that, gather all that information and say, look, one of your options is observation. Based on your history, there's a really high probability of endometriosis. The ultrasound shows that maybe it's not so bad or the ultrasound shows that, hey, it's really concerning and it looks like there's bowel involvement, but still observation is an option for that patient to choose, hey, I'm just going to sit on it for now. I'm going to deal with it, understanding that there's a disease that can progress and that is causing issues. The second category is what I call palliation. A lot of hormone proponent doctor providers don't like the term palliation because we normally use that in patients with cancer. And, and palliation is essentially medical treatment of symptoms without treatment of disease. And clearly that applies to hormones in the case of endometriosis. Hormones are palliative measures. And there, you know, there are other things that can help control patients' symptoms. There's diet changes. There's uh, physical therapy that can help with symptoms. Acupuncture, acupressure. These are all things that, that can go into that palliative measure specifically for endometriosis, either, even though like physical therapy can address specific pain generators that are real from an endometriosis standpoint, they're helping to control symptoms. And then the third category is surgical. And like you mentioned, surgery needs to be, or they need to be aware that not all surgery is equal. You know, burning across the tip of an iceberg doesn't melt the iceberg. 
or, you know, mowing the lawn does not get rid of the dandelion, but getting in and digging the dandelion out is the best chance that we have for not having that, that disease come back. So really observation, palliation, and surgical management covering all the different ways that surgery can be carried out with the idea, and they do in the adolescent one, they actually do recommend referral to a surgeon who is familiar with endometriosis in adolescence because it can be hard for them to pick out. And they need to carry that in the other document as well. And just say, look, if you don't feel comfortable treating this or if you don't have the time or want to take the time, there are surgeons who are more experienced and, and more able to treat the full spectrum of the disease from a surgical standpoint. So how do we get you to write the documents and then like pass them out? Do we just like you know, spam every email of every doctor and every national body in the world? Or how do we, how do we get you to get that dream become a reality? I uh, wish I knew. You look at how long advocates have been pushing and trying to teach and trying to change this ACOG document. And it's fallen on deaf ears. You know, it really has. Even, you know, years ago when, when the group met in front of ACOG while they re were reviewing thing and had, and had their protest out in front, nothing changed. My fear is that it may not change until they see the threat to the providers. And that, that's probably, unfortunately, going to be the thing that's going to push the document to be moved. Okay, so now we're going to move on to discussing the ACOG Practice Bulletin 114, Management of Endometriosis, which came out in 2010. Um, I actually did have some questions lined up for you about this document, but you covered them already when you were talking about the other document for the adolescents. So I'd love to just give you like an open question here. So what do you think of the ACOG Practice Bulletin 114? Is there anything that you'd like to discuss with us about it? Yeah, so uh, other than the things we've already covered, the two, the two other main things that I want to bring up is they do have a section in here, and I want to read it right from there. It says, in women who do not desire future fertility and in whom conservative medical and surgical management have failed, how efficacious is definitive therapy for endometriosis? And then the first line of that paragraph, they define definitive therapy as hysterectomy with bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy, so removing the uterus and the ovaries and tubes, is often regarded as definitive therapy for the treatment of endometriosis-associated intractable pain, adnexal masses, or multiple previous conservative surgical procedures. So they present hysterectomy as this definitive option. I think back to the movie Princess Bride with the, I can't remember the little character name who keeps saying inconceivable. And they ask him, I don't think you know what that word means. The way that hysterectomy is presented for treatment of endometriosis is by no means definitive. They put forth this procedure that removes the uterus to treat a disease that by definition occurs outside the uterus. So they present this in the guidelines as a definitive way to treat the disease. And doctors look at that. They go in and they remove the uterus and remove the ovaries and they leave all of the endometriosis untouched. And then not only do they tell the patient that their pain can't be from endometriosis because they've had a hysterectomy, 
I've heard of patients presenting to the ER telling them they can't have endo because they've had a hysterectomy. I've seen surgical procedures be denied from insurance companies because they've already had a hysterectomy to treat the disease. And, and because they had that, they cannot have endometriosis. Clearly, we know that's not the case. You know, in the very next paragraph, it says, can patients have recurrent symptoms after hysterectomy and oophorectomy? And the short answer is yes, because hysterectomy and oophorectomy in most patients don't treat endometriosis. They treat one of the potential pain generators. And it can take away hormone stimulation and puts them back into palliative care of the disease, but the disease itself is untouched and untreated. So presenting hysterectomy as definitive treatment. And then if you look at the end of that document, they go into the summary of recommendations and conclusions. And that idea of hysterectomy falls under a category C or a level C recommendation, which is basically just expert opinion without any data to back it up. And then the final thing that I, I think summarizes what we see in that ACOG bulletin the best. And remember, this was written in 2010. It was reaffirmed in 2018. And the best they could do when they look, okay, we now, we've now written this document. You know, how can, we, how can we tell if this document is successful, if it's meeting the goals that we want it to meet? The only proposed outcome measure or performance measure is this. The percentage of patients with suspected endometriosis receiving oral contraceptive therapy for pain management before more advanced therapies. So the best they can hope for from their document, the most they can hope for for patients is that more of them will try birth control pills before they move on to something else. And the idea that we, that we get these patients with long histories of pelvic pain, painful periods that have not been tried on some form of birth control is almost laughable. That, you know, that's the first thing really that jumps to my, other than, you know, maybe starting them on, on things like ibuprofen and that nature. Really, in, in reality, most doctors and even primary care pediatricians, family practitioners, most of them are aware that birth control pills can be used to help control painful periods. And to set that as your outcome measure in 2010 and in 2018 is almost laughable. You know, when we look at what we know of the disease and the impact that it can have on patients, certainly they, I think that they need to set a much higher bar than that. Let's move on to talking about informed consent. What is informed consent and why is it so important when it comes to endometriosis care? So informed consent really pulls in the medical ethics idea of patient autonomy, meaning that a reasonable patient giving the education or understanding necessary can make their own decision regarding how that disease is managed. That's the underlying tenet of informed consent. Now, Clearly, to make an informed decision, a patient needs to be presented with truthful and complete information. So we, we covered that a little bit earlier on where, you know, number one, saying it's too risky to treat or take this medicine or this hormone and it will prevent progression. Again, both of those have issues with them from, a, from an informed consent standpoint. But there needs to be a level of trust between the patient and the doctor. And, and the doctor needs to understand, too, that you know, just because they present all of these options, a doctor is not obligated to provide all the options of care that are available. But 
them not being able to offer a particular management does not remove their obligation to present that. So then that's where we come into expert care. If a patient has a frozen pelvis with bowel involvement, just because that doctor doesn't feel comfortable removing it does not remove the obligation to cover the different management options that that patient has. Yeah, I think we talked a bit about this earlier, but I do think that the lack of informed consent is one of the major barriers to the patient getting good endometriosis care, great endometriosis care, expert endometriosis care, because when the patient doesn't know all the options exist, a big problem for me is that there are doctors who, when the patient comes to them and the doctor says, I think you have endometriosis, I want you to go on this new medication. This is your only option. You know, and I think there's a lot of patients who we see they're being told, this is your only option. And I think those words are really dangerous words to say to a patient, you know, and they're really limiting words in terms of the treatment that a person can get because we know that, as you said, there's, I mean, first of all, there's like three categories of options, observation, palliative care, and actual treatment of endometriosis, you know, and within palliative care, there's, you know, many different kinds of hormonal medications, diet, et cetera, acupuncture, changing your lifestyle. I mean, there, there's so much that we can do as patients with endometriosis. Now, that's not to say that all of them are going to help manage our symptoms. Maybe maybe it's very hard for us to find something to manage our specific symptoms, but there definitely isn't something that is your only option. And so I think being told this is your only option, and I think we're seeing this more and more with the marketing that is around like certain GnRH drugs, for example, the way that these drugs are being marketed and the hype around specific drugs, it's like the patients are being told, this is what you need to try and this is the only thing available. And that is a huge disservice to the patient. And I think too, as the patient, in my own case, my doctor told me that she thought I had endometriosis. After 16 years, finally, a doctor like listened, didn't you know want to just give me birth control, told me, I think you have endometriosis. You need to go on Lupron. And that's all, that's all she told me. That was our whole appointment. And I left and I was like, oh my gosh, endometriosis, researching, researching. It took me months of researching to even come across excision surgery because when you don't know what you're looking for, it makes it really hard to find it. You know? And so, yeah, I think this is a, a big problem is that all of the options need to be on the table for the patient, for the patient to then be able to make their decision, research further, decide if this is the best fit doctor for them, or if perhaps another doctor would be better for them. Yeah, you know, and, and aside from the, the disease implications, think of the psychologic risk to a patient who is told this is, this is your disease and this is your only option. And the patient uses that option and doesn't find relief. And then they're, sit there, they're stuck thinking that there's nothing else that can be done, that this is the way their life is going to be and there's nothing that they can do about it. When in reality, there are other options that should be presented and offered. So certainly from a disease standpoint, it's difficult, but really from the, the overall impact on a patient, from psychosocial everything, it's incredibly damaging to be told this is this is your only option. And when that doesn't work, that you're just kind of stuck. And I think kind of stuck is how the majority of us patients feel. We feel stuck. We feel like there are no options. There's nothing that can help. And there are 
options that can help. But if we don't know about them, then we can't try to go after them. So I want to talk for a second about, as I was saying, there's been a lot of hype, media hype around new drugs coming out. So particularly in 2018, Orlissa came out, which is Elagalix, um, which is a GnRH antagonist made by AbbVie. Basically what that is, it's, a, it's an oral drug that lowers estrogen. And part of the hype was that it is the first and only pill approved by the FDA specifically for endometriosis pain relief, for moderate to severe endometriosis pain. And so, you know, last night I was taking a look at like, I just put in Orlissa and I put in like the word progress, advancement, and I saw that Orlissa was called a revolutionary advancement. Another article called Orlissa a significant advancement. And I know that recently, just a couple of months ago, we saw the announcement of another GnRH antagonist, which is called MyFembry, which is made by Myovan and Pfizer. You know, and there's also a couple more in the works, which is Obzeva's Yeselti, which is Linzagalix. And that is on its way uh, to launch across Europe, I believe. So, you know, we've seen a lot of like hype about these advancements in endometriosis treatment. And I think while it is wonderful that, you know, we have more options for medical management, I think there's many of us who we just, we don't want to see another version of a hormone that's similar to another hormone. So yes, Elagalix came out, but now we're seeing like spinoffs of Elagalix, like different brand names being made. And I think what many of us want to see is we want to see more access to the gold standard, which is excision surgery. And I would also say like, I would like to see maybe more options that don't have to do with hormones that, you know, can help manage symptoms that are not hormone related, because as we know, excision surgery is at this time, incredibly inaccessible. And so it is very important that patients have options so they can try to manage their symptoms, manage their pain, get through their day-to-day life, go to work, live their lives. My question for you is, what would progress and advancements look like for you in endometriosis treatment? So first off, one of the one of the big things, and, and this came out right up around the time of the Elagolix or, or Lissa, where they were trying to make a case for, you know, increasing the use of the, of the drug. There has been a lot of talk in the academic circles and, and in other areas of no longer needing surgery to make the diagnosis of endometriosis. And I, and I think that this, the underlying push for that, I mean, surgery carries risks. We understand that. But not doing surgery for endometriosis also carries risks, and that comes in as part of the informed consent. But the push has been made that, based off clinical presentation, that doctors can just make the diagnosis of endometriosis. So call the pain, call the symptoms, call the disease endometriosis. Now that they've given it a name, oh, look, we have this new drug that's specifically approved for treatment of endometriosis pain. So now that we've magically called it endometriosis, now we can use this drug to help control your endometriosis-related pain. You know, and yes, it's the first drug specifically FDA-approved for treating endometriosis-related symptoms and pain. 
But the reality is we've used a number of things for years and years and years that have been proven in studies to be somewhat effective at controlling symptoms as well. Birth control pills, IUDs, depo shots, progesterone pills. You know, regardless of FDA approval, study after study, more studies have proven those to be beneficial than there are studies to show that elagolics or the GnRH agonists are, or antagonists are, are useful. Um, you know, and, and the interesting thing, there's been one study to date that I'm aware of that compared uh, the GnRH agonist to Depo-Provera injection. And the primary outcome of that study was looking at bone loss between the two, but they had secondary evaluation of, of symptom control. And there was no difference between the two. So really, in the one head-to-head study that we have, the GnRH antagonist didn't prove any better at controlling symptoms than a proven method that doctors have used for years and years, I guess, off-label from FDA approval. And that was one of the big problems that the ISA review had with the GnRH antagonist in the beginning, is that really there was no evidence to show that it was any better than the hormone therapies that, that we've already had for years. Now, the, again, there will be patients that will respond better while they're on that. But the, I mean, there's some pretty significant side effects to it that they need to be aware of. But along with all the other ones, the GnRH agonists, they carry the same benefit as a birth control pill. And even though pain might be controlled or symptoms might be controlled, there still can be a progression of disease. So magically calling the symptoms endometriosis and placing them on this hormone does absolutely nothing to affect the downstream effects of the disease. I've commonly on social media referred to this as the emperor's new clothes approach to endometriosis care. They're presenting this magically wonderful new medication that really does nothing more than the medications that we've had for years and years and years. It just contributes to the delay in appropriate treatment. Yeah, it's interesting when last night I was, you know, refreshing myself on like the media hype around this new class of drug, the GnRH antagonist. And you know, part of what I was reading in, in these um, articles was that uh, what you were saying that, you know, since this is the first FDA approved drug specifically for endometriosis pain, it's like, oh, you know, previously we, we were using medications, but they were off label. But now we have like one that's specifically approved for this. And it's like off label or not. I mean, if, if there are studies, more studies showing that these drugs can help, you know, symptom management in patients with endometriosis with a, a lesser side effect profile, I don't know, it's just just a lot of hype. And part of um, what was in some of those articles was talk about how we need to have a push for an earlier diagnosis. Why? So that, you know, patients can, I think, as you said, when, when we know it's endometriosis, now we have this, now we have this drug, you know, specifically for endometriosis. So even in the articles themselves, back in 2018, it was talking about how we should have more awareness campaigns, like more push to have patients get their diagnosis early so that they can get the quote unquote treatment early. And while I am a huge proponent of early diagnosis, um, which is very, very important, both for the patient to know what the heck is going on with their body, you know, and know the disease that they have, I think early diagnosis needs to go hand in hand with expert treatment. So let us know why is early diagnosis not enough? 
And, you know, why must early diagnosis and informed consent and proper endometriosis treatment go hand in hand? So, I, I mean, early diagnosis, we know that it takes in general eight to 10 years for a patient to be diagnosed with endometriosis. Um, clearly, that's that's under the realm of, you know, that I, I think are appropriate guidelines of surgical diagnosis, because I really, until we know, we don't know. We're just guessing at what we're treating. And, and this whole idea of looking at the symptoms and saying, oh, you have endometriosis, our next step is just to put you on these hormones. Um, number one, you're not totally sure that you're treating endometriosis. It's still a, it's still an informed guess, an educated guess. But two, again, you're you're taking the decision away from the patient. That certainly early diagnosis based off symptoms or early suspicion based off symptoms is important because that brings up the word the diagnosis to the patient, the word endometriosis to the patient. But that clearly should be followed by these are your treatment options or these are your management options. You know, we, we're not we either we know it's endometriosis from surgery from a prior surgery or we think you have endometriosis. These are the things you've got to be concerned about. We, we have observation. If you want to, you can just deal with it for a while. Two, we can try any number of these hormones to see if we can find one that helps control the symptoms. But it's important for you to understand that if we're even if you're able to suck it up and deal with it, or if we are able to find a hormone that helps control your symptoms and allows a teen to be functional to do the things they need to do and want to do, there still is a risk of progression of the disease that can make it more difficult to treat in the future and could impact the fertility. That's a discussion that should happen with every patient with a presumed diagnosis of endometriosis. Followed by the third category of, you know, there is also the option of surgical management with the idea that we get in and identify the areas involved and remove them. Every patient, what, you know, if, if they want to make a push for early diagnosis of endometriosis based off symptoms, I think that's fine. Because, I mean, that raises the awareness and puts the word in the patient's mind. But that early diagnosis should, must be followed, should, not should, but must be followed with presenting of all three categories of options for that patient to consider and, and choose. Yeah, and I feel like, you know, unfortunately with endometriosis care, I mean, that, that issue of informed consent is just probably one of our biggest issues. And unfortunately, I think what we see happening is we are seeing people get their diagnosis sooner, which is absolutely fabulous, but then they're getting offered. I have many people coming to my DMs telling me, oh, my doctor says I have endometriosis and they want me to go on a GnRH antagonist. And they told me this is my only option. And so it's like these conversations, these discussions that should be happening, at least from what I, and I think other advocates are, are hearing about, they're not, a lot of times they're not happening. And a lot of times we are being, you know, patients are being told, this is your only option. This is your best option. It's a five minute conversation. I even had a patient you know, write me the other day in their, in my DMS on Instagram, they had a diagnostic laparoscopy with their doctor for endometriosis. The doctor didn't find anything, which we know is also a big problem. If, you know, an untrained surgeon who is not able to recognize all the subtle appearances of endometriosis goes in, does a diagnostic laparoscopy, misses disease that actually happened to me in my first laparoscopy. When I was 19 years old, I was told I didn't have endo and I do. 
Um, but then this doctor told them, well, you don't have endometriosis, but you should go, but you have pain that's like endometriosis. You should just go on a GnRH antagonist anyway. It, it's just frustrating. It's frustrating as an advocate to be trying to help different people and educate, you know, the community, but be hearing stories about just a real lack of informed consent and misinformation going around from the medical community. It's just, and this is why we're here today, you know, to try to reach a, an audience to talk about these really important topics around endometriosis treatment and care. So we are winding down on our interview today, and I would love to hear from you about, you know, considering that you are an excision surgeon, you do provide expert care to your patients, and additionally, you're an advocate in our community for endometriosis and for better care. So I would love to ask you the ideas that you have to move forward to better endometriosis care. And I think you know, one of the first questions is what can we do to provide better education for our providers that are treating us daily? So, I mean, really, this is, is probably biased a bit toward my experience. You know, my experience in residency with complex stage four disease was you put the camera in and they do what's called a peak and shriek and see how bad the disease is. In one instance, it was a it was a new provider who was a, a chief resident over me that out on our first year of practice and had we had one of those cases together. And what I was taught in that moment when she called in one of her older partners in is, you know, commented, yeah, that's really bad. You just need to close up and put them on Lupron. So that's in many cases, that is what is being taught to residents in a real world environment. And in order to improve the general care for patients with endometriosis, we need to change that. And I understand that there are probably residency programs, both, you know, academic-based or private-based, private hospital-based, that may not have access to expert endometriosis surgeons. And I would really love to be able to get um, the information out to those residency programs that they can use you know, potentially some grand rounds type video discussions or presentations to that they can search online or have access online that during their grand rounds, you know, they can pick one of those or two or three and have a day of endometriosis just to teach those residents. This is a disease that you're going to be faced with. It's a difficult disease. We all are aware of that. But to help them understand that there are a number of different ways to approach it and a number of different ways to care for a patient and that every patient is not the same and every patient deserves the right or deserves the ability to make a personal informed decision about how they want their disease managed to let them know that, yeah, that the endometriosis can grow in the bowel and it can grow in the diaphragm. And yes, that's difficult to treat, but it can be done. And yes, it carries additional risk, but in the right hands, that risk is pretty small, that there are surgeons in places who can take care of that disease safely for your patient, that that would allow them to get into the community and be an advocate for their patient, even though they may not be able to, to surgically manage the disease, they can still advocate and care for that patient. So that's, that's one of the main things that I would really love to see from an education standpoint is, is focusing on the providers and just giving them the tools or the understanding as they head out in their careers that they don't have to be everything to every patient. I mean, that's why they don't do cancer surgery. That's why a lot of them don't do prolapse surgery. 
That's why a lot of them don't do, you know, high risk pregnancy management is because there are people who understand it and do it better. And to give them the understanding that there are those of us in the community that can address this severe aspect of endometriosis would be very beneficial. I think that's where that need for the subspecialty of endometriosis comes in, because what you were saying about the cancer and the high-risk pregnancy, it's like there is knowledge that these are things that need to be referred out, that these are things that need a more expert care. And we need to really educate on that with our providers that endometriosis is also a disease that needs to have its own subspecialty and expert care. So recently you returned from AAGL and you posted on Instagram that you had spoken with some of your colleagues and you had ideas on how to further endometriosis treatment. So would you talk a little bit about the ideas that you have? Well, one of them is the one we covered with, you know, the potential Grand Rounds video series. I would love uh, as chair of the, the special interest group with ACOG, I'm hoping to get permission to develop that and actually put it in our library and make it accessible to residency programs for free, that they can then take those and show them to their residents. Uh, I know Dr. Mosbrucker is hoping to uh, develop an endometriosis surgery module for the AGL fellows. So those that are in advanced fellowships, they are again, just as excision surgery, excision surgeons are not all equal. Fellowship programs related to really related to everything are not equal. Some focus on, you know, fibroid management. Some focus on, you know, hysterectomies, and some focus mine focused on prolapse for the most part. Some focus on endometriosis, and some have a good smattering of everything. But there's a, a very wide variety of what those fellows get exposed to, and, and to have some maybe a more advanced training videos or 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 possible things of that nature to, to teach the fellows. Uh, another thing that Dr. Mosbrucker brought up that I thought was just, was a great idea that her and Dr. Vargas are doing already is to have a mentor, uh, to set up a mentor within AGL Endosig uh, of those of us who would be willing to kind of be mentors to younger docs and help guide them through their, their learning and, and their experience with endometriosis and critique you know, their surgical techniques and help them learn and grow. So the mentoring and preceptoring aspect, I think would be really cool to see from a surgical standpoint, you know, regarding endometriosis treatment in general, you know, the reality is right now, the only thing we actually have that actually treats endometriosis as a disease is surgery. Uh, It would be really nice if we could, if we could figure out some form of medicine that could be either injected or given through an IV or something of that nature that specifically attacks and focuses on the endometriosis cells. We don't have that at this point. I I don't know a great deal about it, but, you know, they're using immunotherapy to specifically tailor cancer treatments to, to individual patients, taking markers off their tumor cells and developing immunotherapies to directly attack those cancer cells, you know, potentially using that same technology from an endometriosis standpoint. Uh, but I know there's a, there's a big variety in, in markers on endometriosis as well. So it's not as, as simple as it may sound, but I, that's one area of research and medicine that I, at least to me would have some promise is trying to find a way to find the unique markers or cellular markers of endometriosis and somehow develop an immunotherapy that directly attacks those while leaving normal cells untouched. Would that be considered gene therapy? 
Uh, I don't think it would be considered gene. It's more immunotherapy. Mm. I mean, gene therapy, the more, you know, who knows what we're going to learn regarding gene management and, and things like that. This idea is more taking kind of proteins on the surface of endometriosis cells and uh, somehow developing antibodies or, or that would promote the destruction of those, of those endometriosis cells when they're bound. Well, it's nice to hear about ideas and initiatives that you and other surgeons have that you want to put into, into reality, because I think when talking about endometriosis, it's, it's rightfully so really easy to focus on just everything that is going wrong within our standard of care. It is a devastating disease to have both physically and emotionally, and it's, it's hard and it's frustrating to you know, see the, the standard of care that the general standard of care, because as we know, there are expert surgeons out there like yourself, like many of your colleagues who are able to expertly treat and remove the disease at the root from all parts of the body. And that's wonderful. And we want to keep seeing more centers pop up like Endo West that you, you know, are founding in the next month or so. You know, hopefully good things are coming in the future for endometriosis patients. And I think there's a lot of grassroots advocacy, both from patients and from surgeons and doctors alike. I think some of our best advocates are also the surgeons that are treating us. And so I just really want to thank you. Thank you for caring so much about our community. Thank you for being such a dedicated advocate. Thank you for speaking up about the standard of care. Thank you for, you know, opening another world-class center out West for excision surgery. I think I'm really excited to see what is in the works for you and the things that you can accomplish. I think you're, you know, not only are you great, a great surgeon advocate, but you're very driven. And so just on behalf of all the listeners and our endometriosis community, a big, big thank you to you for all the work that you're doing for us patients. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. It's not, I mean, it's not an easy thing, but man, it's worth it. it. It's worth it. It's tough and it's not always successful. Um, but, you know, the number that we are able to help and, you know, really pushing down this road and, and really making an impact in early, actual early treatment, not just early diagnosis, but early treatment, I think has the chance of really making an impact on this, you know, advanced destructive disease that ruins lives. You know, even though we may not be able to eradicate the pain in every patient, if we could get into patients early and get rid of the disease and, and know that more than likely it's not ever going to get to a stage three or four would be huge. You know, if we, if we could get these patients early rather than just dumping the hormones on them for years until we, until we find something better. Clearly, if we could find something that could be put into IV, you know, I think almost every endometriosis patient, even if it caused them to lose their hair. I think almost every endometriosis patient would gladly go through a few months of that to be free of the disease. Um, but until that time comes, you know, I don't think it'll ever happen with that drastic of a thing, but ideally we'll find something that can treat that disease on a cellular level. That's not, you know, that doesn't require surgery. Let's hope so. 